Well, good morning and merry, merry Christmas. Isn't it a privilege to gather together this morning of all mornings to celebrate the birth of our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? The wonder, the mystery of Christmas is that the eternal, exalted Son of God willingly came to this earth and became a man. He was born as a little Jewish boy in Bethlehem. God became man. And this is the astonishing mystery that we celebrate each Christmas. And it's this wonderful truth that I want us to focus on this morning. So please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 18. It can be found in the Bible in the chair pocket in front of you on page 1062. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. And my hope and prayer is that God will use our time in this wonderful passage to stir our hearts to gratitude and to worship of Jesus Christ this morning. So Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This is God's word to us, God's people. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and my sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help as we look at God's word together now. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help as we study your word. Please cause our hearts to rejoice in wonder and awe at the gift of Jesus. 
increase our love and our worship and our thankfulness for Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In approaching this text, we're going to be asking and answering three main questions. First, what did the Son of God do that first Christmas? Second, why did he do it? And third, how should we respond? So let's begin by asking and answering our first question. What did the Son of God do that first Christmas? The answer is, he added humanity to his deity and so became fully God and fully man in one person. So look at what the writer of Hebrews says about this. Look at verse 14. Now, since the children, so that's you and me, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. The wonder of Christmas is that the eternal Son of God actually became human. He willingly added humanity to his deity. Now, this addition of a human nature in no way compromised his divine nature. He didn't become less than God. Michael Horton, a theologian, writes, his deity was not converted into our humanity. Rather, he assumed our human nature. So in adding humanity to his deity, Jesus remained truly and fully God. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews has just gone to great lengths arguing for the full deity of the Son of God. Look back with me at chapter 1, and let's just skim over this and see some of the things that the writer has already said about the Son of God. In verses 2 through 3 of chapter 1, he introduces Jesus to us as the exalted, eternal Son of God. He writes in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, God has appointed his Son, heir of all things, and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then skip down to verse 8. The Son is addressed as God when the writer quotes Psalm 45 and applies it to Christ. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then in verses 10 through 12, he again makes the point that the Son is the eternal creator of all things. And so what we see throughout chapter 1 is that over and over again, the writer is showing that the Son is fully God and worthy of all of our worship. And so then, when we get to chapter 2 and we read that this eternal, exalted, creator, Son of God was willing to share in our flesh and blood, we should be shocked and amazed. God the Son actually became one of us. To share a weak and woefully inadequate illustration of this level of humility and condescension, it would be like you or I becoming an ant. It seems almost unthinkable that God would be willing to do this. 
And yet the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is not ashamed to become one of us. Look at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2. Jesus isn't begrudgingly becoming one of us. It says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. What is remarkable about this is that Jesus is actually happy to enter into our humanity. He's not embarrassed to become one of us. He's not embarrassed to share in our flesh and blood. Now, Hark the Herald Angels Sing captures this beautifully when we sing, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Incredible grace, staggering mercy the eternal, exalted Son of God would willingly and unashamedly share in our flesh and blood. And this was not a a partial sharing in our flesh and blood. Jesus didn't just assume some parts of our human nature. No, he became fully and truly human. Look at how strongly this point is emphasized in verse 17. The writer says, Jesus had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. Not in some ways, but in every way. In sharing in our flesh and blood, the eternal Son of God truly became one of us. This means that he took on a human body and a human soul, just like you and I have. This means that he now has a heart that beats and pumps blood through his body. He has skin that can bleed and nerves that can send pain signals to his brain. As a little boy, he held onto his daddy's fingers as he learned to take his first steps. When he was young, he would find comfort in his mother's arms and would run to her when he was hurt or afraid. As a teenager, he went through puberty and enjoyed all the fun bodily experiences that come with that. As a carpenter, he developed blisters on his hand that eventually turned into calluses. He would grow tired and need to rest, one time even falling asleep in a boat he was so tired. He has feelings and emotions. He knows the joys of friendship and laughter. He knows the pain of loneliness and betrayal. He knows what it is like to be sad, and he knows what it is like to be happy, and everything in between. Jesus truly became like us in every way, yet without sin. And this is because sin is not intrinsic to our humanity. Sin is an evasion, a corruption of God's good creation. So this, this is what the Son of God did that first Christmas morning. 
he willingly added a human nature to his divine nature and became forever fully God and fully man in one person, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what he did. Now let's look at why he did it. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews gives us six powerful reasons why the Son of God became a man. So reason number one, the Son of God became human because we are human. Look at how the writer of Hebrews argues this. Look again at verse 14. Now since or because the children, you and I, have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. And then verse 16, for it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. So here's the point. If the Son of God wanted to save angels, he would have become an angel. But that's not who he was interested in saving. He was interested in saving flesh and blood humans, and so he became a flesh and blood human. That is why it is so important that he became like us in every way, as verse 17 emphasizes. If Jesus was not fully human, he would not be able to save humans. So as one of the church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, famously put it, for that which he has not taken up, he has not saved. He saved that which he joined to his divinity. The point Gregory is making is that in order to save humans, he had to actually become a human. He had to join human nature to his divine nature. If he was not fully human, he would not be able to represent us before God. We needed someone like us to represent us. So this is why the church has rejected any teaching that compromises either the full humanity or the full deity of Christ existing in one person. So that's reason number one. The Son of God became human because we are human and he wanted to save humans. Reason number two. The Son of God became human so that he could die. Look again at verse 14. The writer says that Jesus shared in our flesh and blood so that through his death. Now we'll get to the rest of the verse in a minute, but let's stop here and just soak in this for a second. Think about that. If the eternal Son of God didn't become human, he couldn't die. He would have remained immortal and invincible. However, in adding humanity to his deity, the Son of God became mortal. He became killable. By becoming a man, it became possible to hang him on a cross until he bled and suffocated to death. And this, according to the writer of Hebrews, is one of the reasons the Son of God became a man. 
So what we have seen so far is that the Son of God became human because we are human and so that he could die. Reason number three, the Son of God became human to destroy the devil. Look at the rest of verse 14. The Son of God shared in our flesh and blood so that through his death, what might he do? He might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, in just a moment, we'll look at how his death destroys the devil. But for now, it's important for us to see that as a result of the Son of God becoming man, he is able to die a devil-destroying death. That's good news. So let's look at reason number four now. The Son of God became human to free us from our slavery to the fear of death. And we see this in verse 15. Jesus shared in our flesh and blood so that he could free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So according to the writer of Hebrews, all of us, whether we're always consciously aware of it or not, live in slavery to the fear of death. No matter how hard we try to deny it or distract ourselves from it, death is inescapable. Does not matter how much kale and broccoli you eat, doesn't matter how many hours you may spend at the gym, all of us will eventually die. Death truly is humanity's great enemy, and it looms menacingly over all of our lives. But the good news of Christmas is that the eternal Son of God became a man so that he could free his people from this slavery to the fear of death. So let's think about how does he do this? How does his death destroy the devil and free us from our slavery to the fear of death? Our answer is found in our fifth reason for why the Son of God became human. The Son of God became human to serve as an atonement-making priest for the sins of his people. Look at the end of verse 17. By becoming human and dying in our place, Jesus was able to make atonement for the sins of the people. This word atonement means that Christ's death was a wrath-satisfying, sin-canceling death. He died to pay the debt for his people's sins and to satisfy God's holy and just wrath toward our sin. Because God is holy, he cannot turn a blind eye to sin. Sin cannot be something that's swept under the rug or ignored. No, sin must be paid for. And this is exactly what Jesus' death on the cross accomplished. As the God-man, Jesus died in our place and for our sins. He died to make atonement for the sins of the people. So how does this connect with destroying the devil and freeing us from the fear of death? Here, here it is. Because the devil's power over you lies in his ability to accuse you before God. 
That's where the devil gets his power. He keeps a record of all of our wrongs and he delights in bringing those up before God. Nothing thrills his heart more than shouting out accusations against God's people because he knows that the punishment for sin is an eternity in hell. But in becoming human and dying in his people's place and for their sins, Jesus disarmed the devil of his power to accuse. Now, every time he tries to bring something up against one of God's people, he's told, silence, their record has been paid in full. So picture this with me. Imagine God's throne room and the devil comes marching in with this big three-ring binder and you notice it has your name on it. And with this sick smile, he opens it up and he starts reading entry after entry after entry of all of your sins. On and on he goes, page after page, his excitement and joy just mounting with each gory detail of your failure to love and obey God as you should. And when he finally finishes his accusation, he looks at God and with a smirk says his favorite line of all, okay, just judge, condemn this sinner to hell. But then all of a sudden, a man steps forward, Jesus Christ. And to the devil's dismay, he says, I have paid for all of those sins. Divine justice has been satisfied. There is now no condemnation for my brothers and sisters. This, this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says that Jesus has made atonement for the sins of his people. By becoming human, Jesus was able to step into our place and pay our debt for our sin. And in doing this, Jesus destroyed the devil. He's taken away the one weapon the devil had against us as God's people. The devil can no longer run and bring our sin up against us and condemn us to hell. And so we have been set free from slavery to the fear of death. Because of Jesus, death is no longer terrifying for the Christian. Because Jesus has transformed death from a doorway to hell into a doorway to heaven and the joyous presence of God for all eternity. And this is why a few months ago, when our dear sister Shirley Heriberta was dying, she was not filled with fear, but with a deep longing to be with Jesus. Days before she died, she told me how ready she was to be with Jesus. She wanted Jesus to bring her home to be with him. There was no fear of death in her. There was a longing to be home with her Savior. And this is why my parents, both in their mid-50s, could face death with peace and calmness. Why? Because they knew They knew that Jesus 
had paid for all of their sins and had set his eternal love upon them. And they need not fear death because their Savior had faced their hell for them and had emerged victorious on the other side. And so as Christians, we can join the Apostle Paul in mocking death, taunting death by saying, where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's reason five for why the Son of God became human. Reason number six, the Son of God became human so that he could help those who are tempted. Look at verse 18. The writer says, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus is not a high priest who is so detached from his people that he doesn't understand their struggles and temptations. In becoming a man, Jesus chose to enter in. He chose to experience the suffering and temptations of this life. What this means is that Jesus truly understands the struggles and hardships of living in this broken and sinful world. He knows experientially the temptations that are common to all of us. And as a result, he is able to help those who are tempted. He truly is a merciful and faithful high priest. He has fully entered into our human experience, and so he is qualified he is able to help us in our time of need. Well, these are the six wonderful reasons the writer of Hebrews gives us for why the Son of God had to share in our flesh and blood. If the Son of God did not become fully human, we would all still be dead in our sins and slaves to the fear of death. But the Son of God did become human and that is what makes Christmas so special for Christians. Richard Phillips says it well when he writes this. It was like you that he became and it was for you that he died. It is with you that he sympathizes, knowing well your struggle. Like you, for you, with you. That's our Savior. Jesus really is God's greatest gift. So as we conclude, I want to briefly ask and answer our final question how should we respond to these remarkable truths? 
I think there are at least three fitting responses to what we have heard today. First, thank Jesus. Take some time today to pray and thank Jesus for his willingness to add humanity to his deity in order to save you. Thank him for not being ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Thank him for becoming killable and dying in our place and for our sins. Thank him for freeing us from our lifelong slavery to the fear of death. And thank him for becoming our merciful and oh-so-faithful high priest who is able to help us when we are tempted. So thank him. Thank it. Trust him. Jesus did all of this in order to save us from our sins and an eternity in hell. So trust him to be your savior. Trust that he is the only one who can make peace between you and God. On your own, you cannot stand before God. There is nothing you could ever do to solve your own sin problem. No matter how good you think you are, God's standard is perfection and none of us measure up. You need, you must have someone who is able to pay for all your sins and represent you before God. And that someone is only Jesus Christ. Since he is fully God and fully man in one person, he is able to be the mediator you need between God and you. Through his death on the cross, he has satisfied God's holy wrath toward his people's sins. So if you are here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to save you and to make you right with God, I'm begging you to do that now this Christmas morning. Jesus is the perfect Savior of sinners like you and me. He's perfectly equipped as the God-man to bring sinful man and holy God together. So thank him, trust him, and third, turn to Jesus for help. Dear suffering, struggling, hurting, tempted Christian, Jesus is your merciful and faithful high priest. He himself has suffered when he was tempted and he is able to help you. So turn to him for help. No matter what you are going through, he is able and willing to help. He is not indifferent towards you. How could he be with all that he's done? He loves you and he has willingly entered into our humanity so that he can help you in your struggles. So cultivate the instinct to cry out these two 
sweet and powerful words, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. I can't imagine a scenario where that wouldn't be helpful. And know that when you cry out, Jesus, help, you are not calling out to someone who does not care or who does not understand. No, you are calling out to Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became man for you. So this Christmas and this coming new year, let's thank Jesus. Let's trust Jesus. And let's turn to Jesus for help. Let's pray.